Today on Sagittarian Matters, we're talking about drag queen story hour, queer imagination, dealing with child hecklers, attacks on queer and trans rights across America, and how to find and sustain joy in the face of it all. With my very special guests, Capricorn Lil Miss Hot Mess and Aquarius Michelle T. Stay tuned. Capricorn Matters. Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahunga, California. Listeners, I need to tell you about a few things before we get to the actual serious issues affecting the queer community this Pride Month and the rest of the year. The things I want to tell you about are A, a travel innovations food achievement, and B, the most recent drama from the friendly Russian tortoise owners group, quote unquote friendly. Okay, the first thing is I went to the Orcas Island Literary Festival on Orcas Island off the coast of Washington State, and I was staying in an Airbnb that had just a microwave and a mini fridge. What did I do? I went to the store and I got a packet of those frozen, um, frozen vegan raviolis you know what I'm talking about? Frozen vegan like spinach, fake ricotta raviolis. And I got a big thing of arugula. And then I got some Miyoko's mozzarella. I don't understand if we're supposed to boycott them or not. I didn't. And um, some vegan pesto from a local place and some tofu. I took that home. That was my meal for multiple days. It was terrific. It was a great meal. So if you have to live in a hotel for a week, if you're on tour or something, if your kitchen's being renovated, whatever reason in the whole wide world you need to sustain yourself for a few days, um, that's my suggestion. It was delicious. It was great. I had to restock on arugula at some point, but that was no big deal. And I'm always so happy to have the local pesto, even if I bristle at the price on first glance. Okay, let's get on to the serious gossip which is the quote-unquote friendly Russian tortoise owners group on Facebook, my new community, my new people. Somebody today, just this morning, posted a photo of her two Russian tortoises and said, introducing new to us Mr. Mojo and Mrs. Myrtle. We're so excited. Heart emoji, tortoise emoji, tortoise emoji. First comment. Do you want to guess? Was the first comment congrats? No. First comment. Do I have to be the first person on here to tell you? Unsafe for two to be kept together? Definitely not! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Mating nonstop? Male biting female? Cornering her? Not letting her eat? Stressing her out? She will die. Cause bite marks on face and legs? Is she the one on the inside of the rock? One of them's inside, under a rock. Please take her out. Make sure she eats by herself. Like 17 exclamation points. The original author wrote, hey, no, you don't, meaning you don't have to be the person to tell me. They've been housed together for five years and they are bonded. They often soak together and sometimes separately. They sleep independently, have plenty of space to be separated. They also eat amazingly independently. They seek each other out when free ranging. If I see any signs, I will absolutely separate. Thanks for the concern. The person wrote back, okay, are they mature adults? My two were fine together till one day thinking my male became a man my two were so cute together 
Question mark. Reason why I got another? Keep two together to bond? Exclamation point. Felt bad he was all alone? Question mark. Two years later? Question mark. Boom. A million exclamation points. Horny? Mean as hell. Anyways, I'm so happy to hear your story. Enjoy. Okay. So that was this morning. Different day, different drama. I just want to show you the tone of my people, my new community. Um, some guy posts a picture of his tortoise standing in his terracotta water dish. Think like the thing you put underneath a plant. Oh, some lady posted. Why does he poop and pee all over his food dish every day? Crying emoji. What are y'all using to clean it? Soap wise? You're never going to guess if this comment had to do with soap or not. Um, it didn't. Chris says, probably because you gave him a dish instead of a piece of slate tile. Some people use slate tiles for the tortoise to eat off of because it trims their beak. Also, they usually poop and pee while eating. Okay, somebody else comes in and says, Chris, I seriously doubt it has anything to do with not having a slate tile. Mine shits on her slate tile while eating, as do many others. Chris comes back. Karen, did you not read the also? Chris, I did. I was addressing the first half of what you wrote, though. Uh, Somebody else comes in, the original poster. Karen, I was curious why a piece of slate would matter over terracotta, too. Chris says, because if the food is in a bowl like that, they most likely have to climb into the bowl to get the food while on slate. Half the time, their ass is outside the slate towel because their face is on the food. Karen's back. Chris, again, as you said, makes no difference as they still poop on the slates too. Karen, and again, I say if you have a bowl they have to crawl into to eat, then crawl out. On a slate towel, their ass, A-Z-Z, doesn't have to be on the towel, so less chance of it. Chris, you're aware that tortoises love to climb, right? I have both with a bowl and a slate. She poops in them equally. There's absolutely no difference. A tort poops where it wants to, regardless if it has to climb or not. Karen, yes, but the question was why the tortoise was pooping in the bowl, and I answered that and gave a suggestion, which for some reason you have a problem with. Chris, which was incorrect information, torts poop on both tile and in dishes makes no difference what they stand on. Okay, that comment war was over the course of like a day and a half, and I almost commented, I love this group, underneath their thread. I also wanted to write something like, you guys, what if I poop in the dish? Should I try eating off a slate? Or how do I clean that off? I didn't do any of these things. I don't want to get exiled from my new community of my new friendly best friends. But I wanted to tell you what's going on there. And I want you to imagine me, the trepidation, fear, and kind of masochism I feel at the idea of sending them a photo of my tortoise house that I just built. Um, people keep, you know, posting pictures and they're like, what do you guys think for my... For my shell babies, I just spent $700 on this setup and people would just like tear them to shreds. And so I have a little bit of like anxiety quaking in me being like, dare I send them a photo of my setup? Am I ready for what comes next? I'm not sure. So, so far I've actually only sent them pictures of Hermes out of her containers because I fear these people. And there's so many people in the group. There's like thousands of people around the world um, in this group and they're all, they're all really aggressive. Okay. Enjoy the podcast today. We're talking about actually serious stuff. I appreciate you coming on the ride, learning about tortoise people. And if you ever wanted to be one, just know this is what is possibly in store for you. Have a great week. Have a great pride. 
And thank you for listening to the podcast. Lil Miss Hot Mess is the author of the children's books, If You're a Drag Queen and You Know It, and The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. She serves on the board of Drag Queen Story Hour and has appeared on world-class stages like SF MoMA, Stanford University, and Saturday Night Live. She was a founding organizer of the hashtag MyNameIs campaign that challenged Facebook's real names policy and has published essays in The Guardian, Wired, and Salon. When not twirling, Lil Miss Hot Mess is a university professor. Now please enjoy my talk with Capricorn friend to the show, Lil Miss Hot Mess. Lil Miss Hot Mess, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you for having me. Or should I say Capricorn Matters? Always. <laughs> it turns out that you're a Capricorn. I am. I am a Capricorn Aquarius cusp, but, and I lived much of my life thinking I was actually an Aquarius, but it turns out I'm a Capricorn, but I am a Sag rising. Oh, interesting. We're here to celebrate your book. Long time, long time coming. We planned to have this talk for a long time. We have. If you're a drag queen and you know it, I mean, in a perfect world, we would just sing the whole book. (laughs) We would just sing the whole book and then people at home could do it in their car. As I was rereading it, I was like shaking my butt to the book. This is a beautiful hardback children's book. Thank you. Full color. And it basically is this beautiful like interactive song that you can do with young people or with yourself. Or with yourself. Yeah. Featuring drag queens. Yes. And channeling your own. I mean, I don't want to describe your book for you, but I'm just describing for listeners who didn't see me hold up this book. Um, it's, it's channeling your own fabulous nature. Yeah. I mean, my goal with it is really to teach kids about drag queens without saying, you know, a drag queen is X, Y, Z, but really letting them embody it and shake it out and snap their fingers and shout yes, queen. And yeah, just feel it. I want them to feel it. Love that. It feels, it feels like it adds so much depth to the experience I feel like drag queens have this place in the media right now, this like of being a spectacle. Mm-hmm. But instead of just sitting on your couch being like, look at them, hunty, you can actually, <laughs> instead of just like learning the vocab and being like, look, I'm judging drag queens. Right. You actually get to embody the feeling, like the spirit of what it could be like to be a drag queen. Yes. Which is something that like, I just think everyone should try once or twice, you know, even if it's like, I mean, I, I don't want everyone to be a drag queen because I don't want them coming for my gig. And I just don't think that's how the world works, but I want everyone to get a taste of it and to, you know, not only have the fun of it, but also a little bit of the risk of it, you know, like what does it feel like to shake your bum or what does it feel like to shout yes, queen? And when can you do that? And when does it feel amazing? And when does it feel a little scary? And when does it feel both? Like, I just want them to feel it all. Like, I mean, what I wouldn't have given to go to a drag queen story hour as a kid. Right. Like going straight from watching Pee Wee's Playhouse by myself in my house. Mm -hmm. Being like, look at those ladies. (laughs) 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 To then getting to go to a library where this kind of fun was actually happening. I know. I know. I mean, that's part of why I do this work is like, it's healing for me. I mean, it's, I'm not actually going back to my childhood, obviously, but I, I feel like I get to relive it a little bit. And I, yeah, I always think about 
I mean, it's not like would I have ended up all that differently if I had gone to drag story hour? Maybe not. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'd be a lawyer or whatever my mom wanted me to be. <laughs> but um, yeah, like just kids knowing that they can be that fabulous is, I think, so important. I do like the idea of you actually being a drag queen lawyer, like not taking the drag out of it, but just you being like ordering yeah. the court, your honor. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is a genre we haven't seen yet. And I'm almost kind of shocked by that. I, do, I mean, it does feel like it does feel like Bianca Del Rio could slide right into Judge Judy's that is true. actual chambers. That is true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> drag queen justice. Yes. Uh, okay. I, I do want to go back. We're going to talk about Drag Queen Story Hour, which is a wonderful place to read this book for children. But I I guess I want to talk about, I did a little research, i.e. listening to you on other podcasts, and I found out that you were a figure skater as a child. Yes. Can you tell me about that a little bit? I mean, I was a very gay child, (laughs) you know, even before I had any of the words or confidence to describe myself. But yeah, I was a figure skater. I did musical theater. I did gymnastics. I tried soccer, but never got into it. But yeah, figure skating when I was a kid was one of my passions. Um, I never got to be like amazing. Like I could do some of the smaller jumps um, and things like that and, and spins. And I, uh, yeah, I did like little kid competitions and my biggest uh, number routine, whatever we called it back then, uh, was to the Pink Panther theme. And I got to wear a little pink bow tie and cummerbund. Although, of course, I like wanted to wear the, you know, girly figure skating outfits, which are so much better. Um, but yeah, it was it was a fun, expressive like, strangely supportive experience to get to do that as a little queer child. And why did you quit figure skating? I think I quit because in my early teens, I was worried that it was too gay. And yeah, it like, I don't know. They <laughs> they got to me and it, it got in my head. And I don't know. I just, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the cool thing at the time, which is such a bummer looking back. If there had been drag queen story hour then, could you be a gay figure skating lawyer? today <laughs> could you be johnny weir uh oh my god saying, your honor your honor <laughs> that that is definitely the crossover that we need and now i'm also like why have i never done drag story hour on ice like that <gasps> yeah it's weird. i have done i have d- performed on ice i've performed my very first number performing as little miss hot mess was on ice skates in a club pretending to be on ice but I have never read stories to children on ice while in a courtroom. The strength of your ankles <laughs> must be incredible. I have pretty good balance and pretty good ankles. I'm not going to lie. I want to say the greatest risk to children at Drag Queen Story Hour is me pushing them out of the way, <laughs> especially on ice, is me shoving them right? like, Move it, kid. Right, right. <laughs> I know that would certainly add a new level of danger to it all. <laughs> They'll be like, the queer adults started hearing about this, realizing their inner children had not had these needs met and started shoving the kids out of the way. <laughs> so totally. then the parents started waking the kids up at four in the morning to get a good spot. But then right. the lesbians were already there with camping chairs. Right. <laughs> all hell broke loose. This is the future liberals want. This is the future liberals want. <laughs> there was a time, you know, we used to go to Akuma, Mexico all the time. And it was where... Mm. Um, 
baby sea turtles. There were baby Ugh. sea turtle nests. And then like yes. the local um, conservationist people would be like, hey, tourists, come out and like help us protect the baby <laughs> sea turtles on their way to the ocean. So we would like gather around. And there was a year where there was a lot of kids there. And they were gathered so close around the nest that we couldn't really see. And Eileen Miles is like, move it, kids. We don't care that you're kids. We want to see. <laughs> yes. Justice for queer adults <laughs> reliving their inner childhoods. <laughs> it's like someone saying to a kid, I don't care that you're a kid. Yeah. I want to see too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get out of my way. <laughs> um, can we talk about, this is your second book, correct? This is my second book. Yes. Why did you start writing kids books? How did this come to you? I mean... It really started with Story Hour, which, I mean, yeah, I never thought I was going to write children's books. I never thought I was going to read to children. Um, you know, I like children, but I otherwise have not really had an excuse to be around them very much, except that, you know, a handful of my friends have kids. Um, and so we were doing Story Hour and I was just, you know, we were reading some, I mean, a lot of fun books, more and more queer and trans themed books. Um and it's not like drag queens like need representation, but I was like, it would be fun to have a book that is by and for and about drag queens so that kids can understand this and so that they can take a little bit of the fun and magic home with them. And so that we could also reach kids in places where we didn't have, you know, in-person story hour events. Um, but really I started these as songs um, as a way to make, you know, the, the readings even more interactive and lively and, the first book I really, or the first song I really came up with, like literally on the subway, on the way to one of my readings, thinking about, you know, how so much of drag is about taking elements of mainstream culture, of punching up, of giving things that kind of queer twist. And there's this long tradition, like there's queens who have made entire careers around song parodies, usually making them dirtier. But I was like, we could easily do this with children's songs and just make them kind of lightly about drag culture. And yeah, the, the hips on the drag queen go swish, 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 like literally came to me, you know, in the course of that subway ride. And it was just also so fun to get kids, like I was saying before, to do things like swish their hips or shimmy their shoulders or snap their fingers, things that are coded, you know, effeminate or coded queeny or queer in some way, um, as a way of, of repairing some of that, you know, shame and stigma and hurt from my own childhood, but also giving kids today that safe space to express themselves and to explore those things. So it was a pretty quick leap from, um, from singing songs to, to publishing them into books. They're beautiful. Thank you. And so much credit goes to Olga de Dios, who is the incredible, incredible, incredible illustrator of these books. Oh my God. Olga really brought this book to life. Yes. And I'm so happy, you know, in the world of children's publishing, which I didn't fully know, it's kind of rare as an author to get to have so much say in who gets to illustrate your books. And thankfully, my publisher, Running Press Kids, was really generous with that. And I, you know, again, I, I hadn't been in the world of like children's literature or anything like that. And so I had to do my research and someone recommended her books to me, uh, most of which are in Spanish. She's She lives in Madrid. Um, and a lot of her work was like, like cute, but wacky, zany, quirky kind of monsters. And as soon as I saw them, I was like, this is who I want to do this. Cause she just, I knew she would get the queerness of illustrating drag queens. And some of the options that my publisher had given me were like, 
either very like soft pastel, blah, 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 or like kind of like sexy Disney princess brat doll. And I was like, these are, these are not it. Like drag needs to have that, that quirkiness that immediately jumps off the page or else it's just not going to read. Yeah. Oh my God. I would be so sad if they all looked like Brad stalls. Right. That's like, yeah. Save that for the RuPaul's Drag Race books or whatever. Yeah. Save that for, <laughs> yeah. for this. Yeah. Well, will you tell me a little bit about Drag Queen Story Hour and how it started? Because you and I know, but listeners, I think maybe don't know. Yes. Yeah. So drag, now we go by drag story hour. We dropped, we dropped the queen to welcome in more of the Kings and other fabulous beings. Um, Although we certainly didn't drop the Queens from the program. Uh, But yeah, it started as drag queen story hour in 2015 by our good friend, Michelle T who was just leaving our beloved radar productions, a queer literary and arts nonprofit at the time. Uh, and so Michelle, along with Juli Delgado Lopera and Virgie Tovar, um, really made it happen. And, you know, Michelle had recently had her kid and was looking for opportunities to have like queer friendly and family friendly fun time together. Um, and I think it was just, you know, looking at this traditional model of library story times and feeling like it could just be jazzed up a little bit. And so, you know, I think it's it's interesting. Since then, we've learned, you know, that not shockingly, other drag queens have read books to children throughout history. Um, but I think it was just such a, a magic moment for this to happen. It was such like an idea whose time had come and just so crazy it might work in this moment. And yeah, so it started in San Francisco. I personally had just moved from San Francisco to New York and I was watching all these friends of mine post these like adorable pictures and feeling so, so, so jealous. And uh, Michelle came out to New York and we did a story hour and, you know, we just sort of saw them start to pop up all over the place and eventually, you know, herded cats and and brought us together into this now international organization. So cool. Yeah, it's it's so fun. Is there something that generally what do you usually look forward to when you're going to do it? Like is there something that generally happens that you're like this this moment is probably going to happen there? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, it's interesting cuz compared to some forms of drag, it it's a little bit more formulaic. I mean, not actually, but just the fact that you know that you're going to read a certain number of books and like sing a certain number of songs and stuff like that is a a little more like standardized than a typical drag show. But honestly, I think what I look forward to is the the serendipity of it and the improvisation and like, what the hell are the kids going to say, you know, because you just never know, like you never know what kid is going to come up and like start, you know, petting your sequins or is going to like try to steal the spotlight from you by looking really cute and dancing alongside right next to you. Or, you know, if they're going to ask you a cute question about, you know, is your hair real or how do you get the glitter to stick to your face? And so, yeah, I think, I think for me, it's, it's just getting those responses from kids and, and seeing their curiosity come to life and and trying to figure out like how do they actually make sense of this? What are they, how do they understand what's happening here? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I read your op-ed about imagination. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the importance of that and letting kids, letting their imaginations go wherever drag story hour is going to take them. Totally. Yeah. I mean, 
working on Drag Story Hour has really helped me to see all of drag as this process of play and imagination. You know, I think we get so caught up in like the gendered aspects of it, which is fun and fine and, and important. But to me, like that's sort of the least important or least interesting thing of drag. And, and the more exciting thing is just getting to sort of run wild and, and to be able in Drag Story Hour to connect that to what kids are already doing and to, to make those fun connections. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the stories that we read open up kids' imaginations. You know, there's this great um, kind of theory about how children's books ideally offer both um, uh, mirrors and windows and sliding glass doors. And that's a phrase by Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. Um, so thinking about how, you know, children's literature ideally both shows children aspects of their lives and identities and worlds that they know and understand and affirms them, but it also gives them this window out onto the world to understand the diversity and freshness of the world around them. And, you know, hopefully the sliding glass door to be able to, to walk on through and, and enter that world. Um, but I also think that, you know, even if we weren't reading these fabulous books, there is just something special about being drag performers in this space, like kids, their eyes light up when they see our sparkles and our crazy colors and over the topness. And, um, and that's just so fun. And, and then, yeah, I, I think also too, you know, in this political moment, it, it can feel really like basic or, or Pollyanna-ish to, to kind of lean into imagination when there's like so many terrible things happening. But I, I also think it's really important not to forget that that is one of the, the most important kind of tools and tactics that we have. Um, when I was writing that piece, unfortunately, they cut out my reference to um, the poet Diane de Prima, but she has this great poem about the war on imagination and how all other wars are subsumed under that war. And I, I just think that's so true that like, imagination is so key to envisioning and enacting a more just and fabulous world. And, and so many of the problems that we're dealing with are truly a lack of imagination, you know, whether that's climate change or gun violence or, you know, economic precarity, like we just need to, to dream bigger and dream better. Today's episode is brought to you by Meryl Kaufman. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular producer Chris Sutton, please send $5 or $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo, Hell Books. That's H-E, double hockey sticks, books, on Venmo. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. I started reading this academic article that you were in about drag pedagogy. What can you tell me about drag pedagogy and queer imagination? Yeah, so that was an article that I wrote with my friend, uh, Dr. Harper Keenan, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia in education. And um, it's just been a really wonderful collaboration to sort of bring 
what I intuitively know about drag or my experience doing drag story hour and his, you know, years of experience, both as a teacher, but also theorizing uh, and studying education. And I think, yeah, in writing that we, we wanted to think beyond sort of what we write in grants for drag story hour. You know, we, we write a lot about how it teaches empathy and, you know, all these sorts of things about how it exposes kids to new worlds and, and affirms their identities and all this sort of stuff. And I think that's really true, but, but we were also just thinking about how so much of drag is about what's just a little bit below the surface or what happens when you read between the lines and, you know, listen for those double entendres and things like that. So our motivation was sort of thinking, you know, what could teachers or librarians or, or any kind of parent or educator learn from drag queens to make learning more fun and more effective and, and in some ways more queer, you know, not in the sort of like LGBT 101 kind of way, but in the sort of like, you know, dismantling the structures that, that oppress us and, and maintain the status quo. And so we thought about a lot of things. We thought about, you know, how drag historically has used humor and camp as a way to address, you know, stigma and shame and how, there's a lot of ways that you could do that with kids because kids go through a lot of, you know, feelings of, of discomfort and of being bullied or, or feeling judged or, or all these sorts of things. Um, you know, we think about how, how, like I was saying before, there is something about just witnessing a drag performer in a room that like, even before we open our mouths and read a book, there's all this sensorial stimulation. There's all these questions to be asked about, you know, who is this, magical, unusual creature in the room and how does that change the way we pay attention and, and listen to each other? Um, we think about, you know, what it means to teach kids to be what we call strategically defiant, you know, to not always kind of lean into enforcing or or policing their behavior, but to to encourage kids to talk back or to speak up and ask questions and to question authority, even if that might mean, you know, the teacher's own authority uh, as a way of, of creating more collaborative classrooms. So, so yeah, it's not that we're asking or suggesting that all teachers should put on a wig and high heels, but just getting them to think a little bit more about, you know, if a kid sasses you, what does it look like to maybe sass them back a little bit rather than tell them, you know, to go sit in the corner? And how does that really develop a sort of deeper relationship and, and deeper environment for learning? Yeah. And weirdly and, deeper respect. And deeper respect. I know. And, and that's the thing is like so much of the of I of what I think I embody when I'm doing drag story hours it comes from those teachers who were like kooky and creative and willing to be goofy and willing to get on your level. And, and so, yeah, in that way, it's like, on the one hand, school can be such a confining place, but I've also just been thinking a lot lately about how for me, other elements of school were like totally magical and totally queer. And it like was the place where I got to be artistic and, you know, play with glitter and, and Play-Doh and all these like fun materials. And I think, I think we just need to lean into that more and, and acknowledge that, you know, what we're doing isn't so shocking. A lot of it really is already there. We just kind of need to name it. And of course, drag has been there forever. Mm -hmm. Forever and ever and ever drag has been there. And so it's such a weird red herring right now. How yeah. conservatives be like, <gasps> 
Oh my god! <laughs> Scandalous. Every kid's gay. Who cares if every kid's right. gay? They're, right. They should be so lucky. Yes. But it's just drag. Drag has it's been there all along. It really has, and and yeah, I mean, it's interesting too to think about. I mean, drag as sort of a as a queer art form is maybe a little bit more new. And so those attacks on it as a specifically queer art form, I think are, are also newer, although, you know, at least a century, if not more old. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we we're just seeing so much hypocrisy now. I just saw, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's ex-husband, there were videos of him, you know, cross-dressing on some news program and like, yeah, they 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 just really hate us for being queer, you know, and and when they do it, they're, you know, mocking femininity, they're mocking women in a lot of ways. And when which we is fine. It, we're celebrating. <laughs> right, right. Oh yeah. Nothing to see here. Um, but like when we find our power in it, that's somehow the problem. It's just, I mean, I know you know this, but I'm just like doth protest too much. Yes. Like yes. I'm so sorry, but you know who's really doing the mobile pet grooming, the mobile kid grooming is like right. straight conservatives. In my experience, mm -hmm. it's a lot of straight people. Yes. For many, it's not, it's not a drag queen. No. It's, not a, it's generally not a gay person. Right. Gay, gay person's just trying to get by. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, yeah. They're and just mean, trying to survive. Yeah. And it's not just your experience. I mean, it's empirical. It's like we see all these major institutions of power, the Catholic Church, other churches, terrible politicians. You know, these are the people who are who are unfortunately, you know, abusing children. And yeah, this rhetoric that we're dealing with now harms more children because it, it becomes this, you know, boy who cried wolf situation where we're losing the real meaning of these words and and not giving tool uh, not giving kids the tools and the terminology to name the abuse that's happening to them which puts them at even more danger and like not to use my own family as like this is completely anecdotal but having family members that are so invested in the structure and so invested in the church mm -hmm. when they find out about harm in the church they're so all in on the church that they can't really right. handle the truth of a young person saying this happened to me there Mm -hmm. because they haven't used their, you know, if we're coming back to imagination and the idea of reading between the lines and seeing outside of the structures that are fed to you, they're just like, that can't be the thing you're saying must be wrong victim person mm -hmm. or survivor, because that's not what the church is for. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you're totally right. That is part of that lack of Im imagination that I'm talking about and, and lack of critical thinking, lack of curiosity. Yeah. Lack of a willingness to, to be able to hold kind of multiple truths at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I was thinking about, you know, current, so currently we're talking in May, mid to late May of 2023. And there's been a lot of hullabaloo around drag story hour and you mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I know it's tired to talk about Handmaid's Tale, but here we are. Here and I was thinking are. about how. Blessed be. <laughs> They're really attacking you, but also it's taking away the um, the agency of parents. Like mm -hmm. part of this big thing is like people are like, 
look, it's little mess, hot mess. We're attacking. Oh, because people's kids are there. That's like, but you're also attacking the parents who are consenting to having their kids there and who made a choice. So you're making, you're undermining right. the parent's authority to know what's right for their own kid. So right. even though probably the majority of people think drag story hours, okay. And actually fun and cool. Yeah. This vocal minority is kind of trying to undercut them so that they can have more control of those people's children. Absolutely. Which, yeah, I mean, and they literally call this parents' rights, but what they really mean is, you know, white nationalist, male supremacist, <laughs> homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera, Christian nationalist, parents' rights. And which, you know, shouldn't be surprising because the right is just so full of hypocrisy in terms of the way that they talk about liberty and freedom, but then want to control everyone else's bodies and livelihoods and lives. It doesn't sound fun to yeah. go to the story hour of any of those people that are protesting drag story hour. Oh my God. I will say too, <laughs> that some of them tried to do basically like this, I don't know what they were calling it, but it was basically like conservative story hour. It was like, uh, <laughs> no kid wants to go to that. No, I know. I think it was like Charlie Kirk. And I think the woman behind uh, libs of TikTok and like, they, they have this one, you know, like press that they founded that publishes these like boring, moralistic, right-wing Christian children's books. And yeah, like no one wants to go to that. And it just feels so sad. I'm like, you know what? Drag isn't everyone's flavor of the month. It doesn't have to be everyone's cup of tea. If it's not for you, great. But like truly just live a little and like, don't rain on everyone else's parade because I don't know. Like I just, yeah, I, I guess I've never been able to understand that mindset of if I don't like this, no one else can have it. It's so. Well, boring. it's just, it's such a big distraction. Like somebody is telling people, this is the crucial thing. Mm -hmm. if you love children and earth. The thing you need to do to save it is to stop. Right. Stop this person in a costume, which is like when Harry Potter came out before all the transphobia. But when mm -hmm. Harry Potter came out, people were like, magic. <laughs> right. Like there were hardline Christians that were like, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's absurd. And it is also worth mentioning, too, that, you know, it's not as spontaneous as they want us to make it or as they want us to feel like it is. This is a highly coordinated effort. I mean, the same people who brought you the attacks on quote unquote critical race theory are literally the same exact people manufacturing, you know, this crisis around quote unquote gender ideology or quote unquote queer theory, which it's funny because, you know, queer theory is a thing, but that's, it's not what they're talking about. Um, and, you know, we see these politicians taking their cues from white nationalist groups and neo-Nazi groups and, and thinking that this is, you know, a winning wedge issue, which I, I do think they're wrong about. Um, but I, I just think it's also worth naming that, you know, there's a lot of people pulling strings and connecting dots behind, behind the scenes. Yeah. How many states right now, as of speaking, have drag bands cooking? That is a great question. I haven't looked at my sources in a couple of weeks, but last I saw there were more than 40 anti-drag bills in more than 15 states. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit higher than that, either right now or by the time this comes out. Um, and yeah, many of those attack Drag Story Hour directly or criminalize any um, performances, drag performances at which a child might be present. Some go so far as to basically um, 
criminalize drag performers as essentially sex offenders. Um, some, you know, prohibit the use of public funding for anything related to drag. And of course, that's on top of, you know, literally hundreds of anti-queer and trans bills um, across even more states, you know, most of which are targeting trans youth and, and increasingly trans adults as well. Yeah. I was thinking about the bands on Drag Story Hour, and it's essentially because they think that we're, we're trying to recruit on some level. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, I mean, part of all of this is kids are just going to be gay. You were just gay out of the hatch. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because somebody came up and gave you a pamphlet. Here's how to be gay. <laughs> and it's just uh, about providing, it's also about providing support. Right. Like, you know, like the trans bills, like, tra- like, uh, it's all like, these kids are already going to be trans. It's yeah. about kids not wanting to kill themselves. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's also part of this old playbook. I mean, it's literally the same playbook as the late seventies with Anita Bryant and protect our children and, and all this fear of contagion then. And yeah, the, the backlash to the, the political and cultural visibility that queers were getting in the late seventies and I don't know. It's yeah, it's just disappointing. How are you holding up as someone who's now been on Fox news, you've gone through (laughs) the mind of DeSantis and a lot of really unsavory individuals. Mm -hmm. They have a glamor shot of you on their desks. (laughs) They blow kisses to every morning. I know I should send them an updated one just so they have a a cute one to look at. Um, On like a bearskin rug. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) This one's for you, Marco Rubio. Um, you know, I'm surviving. I have been blessed with a relatively thick skin and I'm able to brush off a lot of the hateration that comes my way. Um, it's annoying. You know, it's more like a, a mosquito than anything that's actually going to harm me, but I still wish I didn't have to keep swatting it away. Uh, but I do have a very, the show must go on kind of attitude. I mean, and I think most drag performers do. This is not our first rodeo. You know, it, it's probably more intense than many of us have lived through in our lifetimes, um, but not for everyone. I mean, many people have lived through even more intense political battles, you know, the AIDS crisis, all these sorts of things. And and that's something that I think about a lot too, is like, when drag is under attack, the answer is more drag. It's to lean into it and to find, again, the solutions in that play and creativity and imagination and to remind ourselves that, yeah, we, you know, we're literally forged in the fires of Stonewall and it was, you know, trans women of color and, and, and gender nonconforming folks who were also drag performers who led that rebellion and led many other important queer uprising. So <laughs> I always think it's funny that these politicians think that it's cute to pick a fight with a drag queen because like they really haven't done their homework if that's that's how they think they're going to win. They're going to get beat with a heel. Someone's going to start hitting them in the face with a high heel. Exactly. You know, we've put pies in people's faces for decades. I, I, I personally haven't, but I, I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. Um, I have a really hard question for you, which is how do you deal with kids that are hecklers? <laughs> I mean, we've, t- we've talked about how you're holding up with all the conservative pressure, but when you go in there to read a book and there's a kid that just won't let you, that's, that's looking for the spotlight. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like I said before, I try to 
I try to find ways to kind of sass them back. Um, although sometimes easier said than done. Sometimes you have to get a little bit stone and, and kind of ignore them. You know, if they're trying to steal your spotlight, sometimes if they're trying to steal your spotlight, um, you know, I follow what Taylor Mac says, which is that you invite them into the story so that they get to feel like they have a part in it, but you ultimately still control that narrative. Um, and again, you know, I think, I think I just try to, to see them as genuinely curious. You know, there's, there's only a couple times that I can think of where there's been a kid who's, you know, asked a question or done something in a way that I feel like is not with the best intention. I can think of this one classroom that I was in with this little boy who, you know, triggered all of my own childhood trauma <laughs> of, of mean little boys, uh, you know, and, and asked me a question about um, what my boobs were made of, um, you know, and, and I think I just, you know, said something like, well, that's not for right now, you know, and, and you just kind of have to move on. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think there's, I think that's one of the fun things is that there's a sweetness to children heckling and there's also the sweetness to adults heckling too, you know, unless maybe not these crazy protesters, but you know, a drunk, a drunk queen in a club is not all that different from a, you know, sugar high kid at a story hour. Everyone's just excited to be part of it. Yes. We're all just excited to be there and we're expressing it in different ways. Right. And that's part of the magic of drag too. And, and something that I really, I've been really enjoying telling kids lately, because sometimes they do ask me, you know, am I really a queen? Am I really a princess? Something like that. And what I love to tell them is that drag queens, we are real, we are queens, but we don't rule over people. We're of the people. And I think that that's such an important aspect of drag culture that's changed a little bit in, you know, recent years with drag race and, and more of the celebrity, but like drag queens, we, you know, <laughs> we hang out with our audiences after the shows, we, you know, do whatever naughty things are going to do. We all drink together. We all dance together. We all laugh together. You know, there might be this kind of moment of, of getting the spotlight on stage, but at the end of the day, yeah, we're all just having a good time together. And, and I think that that's an important thing to remember too. Thank you so much. Can I ask you a bonus question? Please. Out of my pure curiosity. Yes. As you as a thinker and a drag queen, is what what is the intersection between the political backlash and the popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race in the mainstream culture? Oh, I think it's totally related. I mean, I think this political backlash is all about the visibility and political rights that queer and trans people have gained over the past, you know, decade or so. And, um, and it is, it's like that, it's that other sad part, which is that, you know, so many people feel like that's taking something away from them when mm. it really isn't and really doesn't have to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is sort of, there's a lot of queer and trans thinkers thinking about, you know, the trap of visibility and and what it means to, to kind of hook our, political movement to that. And so I think that's, that's part of what we're seeing. Um, and, you know, it's also interesting too, drag performers have always had this weird dance to do between visibility, hypervisibility, invisibility. You know, there's been many times in our political history where mainstream gay and lesbian activists didn't want anything to do with drag performers because we were seen as, you know, not respectable and uh, bad for the movement. And, 
Um, and now, you know, we've kind of been in a moment where we get to be the queens of everything, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's tricky to, to always be in that spotlight. It's such a weird moment. Cause more straight people than ever are like, yes, hunty, you know, go read her for fifth boots down, like whatever thing, right. like I'm saying more straight, straight normative people that maybe like 12 years ago wouldn't yeah. have been speaking this way, thinking about these things, obsessing over these things, be like, yeah. Yeah. Like, and they are. And at that same time, there's this backlash. And I understand there's like the idea of like, oh, everyone's about to lose power. So they're grabbing it. It's a last gasp. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is it a last gasp? Like, how is it so? I hope so. I mean, I don't know. We can only hope. It's like either the last gasp or it's the prelude to fascism. I don't know. I guess we'll <laughs> find out. Not to get too dark. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll find out. Is there anything we did not mention that you want to make sure to mention? Or do you have final words or advice for people that are living in a state where they are a, a drag queen or queer or trans and they're, they want to know how to get, how to get through this moment? You know, I think for that, I would just say to continue to find moments of queer joy. Um which again, I think is just so much of what drag is about is, is not letting them win, not letting them steal that from us, you know, even in our, some of our lowest and darkest moments, you know, finding that torch song that gives us the strength to keep our heads held high and to, you know, link arms and, and fight back. And again, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit wearing my rose colored glasses, but I, I do think, we fought and we've won before and it sucks right now, but we'll, we'll fight and we'll win again because drag is magic and they just, they can't take that away from us. They can't, but you can take home with you for a drag queen and you know it. Yes. <laughs> this is a beautiful, beautiful hardback book. And um, yeah, I know so many of my friends with kids were like, Oh, Little Miss Hot Mess was in Portland and we didn't see her. So oh, no. There, they'll be thrilled to have this book. And if you ever go back, I'll make sure to tell every child I know. Yes, I will. I will do my best to make it back to Portland and wherever people will have me. And I'll also just say to anyone with kids who enjoy my book, let me know. I love seeing that's That's honestly one of the greatest gifts that I can get is photos or videos or just messages telling me about, you know, how your kids enjoyed the book because it's just so special to know that it's it's really out there in the world and yeah get to see it in action and it's so because you write it by yourself and then it goes mm-hmm. out in the world and it's such a private experience reading a book and you know mm-hmm. if you're not hosting a story hour yeah and so it's so nice to know that people had that experience with it it really really is little miss hot mess thank you for coming on the podcast thank you so much for having me it's always a pleasure It's wonderful to see you. And we will be playing the Capricorn Matters theme song for you because of your placement. Work, 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 work. Is that what it is? (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is, that's the spiritual Capricorn Matters theme song. Yes, yes. (laughs) Michelle T is the author of over a dozen books, including Knocking Myself Up, Valencia, Against Memoir, and Black Wave. She's also the co-creator of Sister Spit and Drag Queen Story Hour and hosts the podcast, Your Magic. 
Michelle joined me from a Literary Festival's Wellness Center in Denver, Colorado, to discuss the recent attack on the Glendale School Board by the Proud Boys, and how to be an ally and spark queer joy in the face of it all. Now, please enjoy my talk with Aquarius friend to the show, Michelle T. Michelle, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Proud Boys have decided to visit Glendale, California. Glendale is part of Los Angeles, more or less, part of Los Angeles County. It might be its own city. It um, is, yeah, but it is like you could walk to Atwater Village, you know? Yeah. And Glendale is attached to Tahunga, where the Sagittarius Matter social distancing studios are. But I say this to listeners who are not in Los Angeles or not in, you know, California, just so you understand the lay of the land. So Glendale is technically Los Angeles. Yes. And yet, Proud Boys have strategically decided that Glendale and Temecula, also in California, are two places to hit up to start really hammering hard on gay people enjoying their lives. Can you describe? I I want to say that not only, I'm sorry. Go ahead. um, Not only Glendale and Temecula, um, but also Burbank Mm. um, has been attacked by Proud Boys and uh, recently Eagle Rock has um had a drag queen story hour disrupted by pride by proud boys so there you know it is uh, glendale feels like ground zero for them but they are also you know they're they're on the move and they're all over the place and this is not just some yahoos this is strategy this is different people that have been to proud boy events all around the country this is stuff that is being reported by that guy andy you go on Twitter, like there's just like different proud boy um, facilitators that are, yes. it's, it's all, it's all part of a big thing. It's not just random people. No, no, it's shit. not random at all. This is a really strategic um, organizing plan they have that, you know, what's really interesting is a lot of these people were big anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers and we're doing all this like, you know, unhinged quote activism around that. And it's really now that, you know, masking mandates have been lifted and we're not hearing the big calls to get vaxxed like we once were, that it seems like these people needed a new thing to organize under. And what they've really grabbed is queer visibility in general and queer visibility within schools specifically. And so that's what has, um, you know, that's what has been happening in Glendale. It's around the school board um, and that the Glendale school district acknowledges pride month. That's what it is. Like it's that it's not even like, Oh my God, they've got a really cool queer book and it's provocative. And you know, somebody's trying to do something cool. It's like so fucking basic. It's like, can we um, acknowledge as a school district that June is pride month period. And yeah. Can you tell me what happened at that school board meeting? Sure. Um, I didn't go into the meeting, though they did have public comment. You know, that's what it was. I had heard that there was going to be protesters and that there was a call for, you know, counter protesters, queers to come out. And I was like, oh, of course, I'm going to do that. I've been so upset about this resurgence of really extreme queer phobia nationally. And this is happening in my city. Of course, I'm going to be there. And as it happens, I live two blocks from the school district headquarters. And so I left my house, I opened my door and I immediately could hear them chanting from two blocks away. And there were multiple helicopters in the sky over my house. And I was like, whoa, this is actually, I thought it was going to be, I don't know, 
a handful of losers. Instead, it was like multiple handfuls of of multiple losers. But, you know, so, you know, my my husband was going to he was going to like not come because he had just kind of got, he had been working all day and was like kind of floppy. And then when I was like, Oh my God, I yelled into the house. I was like, you guys, I can hear them from here. Like something is really happening. So he came as well. And then my mom who, who I was like, you know, at first I was like, wanted her to come. And then I was like, no, you're going to slow me down. Cause she has mobility issues. She just on her own, just like got herself two blocks down there because she was up so upset to learn that you know, that it was such a big presence. We could hear them from our doorstep. Um, so yeah. So when I got there, what I saw was a lot of fascists and proud boys, overwhelmingly male, but there were women there too. Um, one super unhinged lady who I guess is very well known. And she is the person who disrupted the Eagle rock, um, drag queen story hour the other day. She's a big anti-mask pro-gun person. She was running around from from like Beverly Hills or something. She was running around screaming about how the school board want to teach children about anal fissures. Hmm. Yeah. So there was that's part of standard curriculum. I don't know why she has a problem with it now. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny. I was like, well, I mean, I don't know who cares if they were even teaching people about things that can go wrong with your body. But like, obviously, that's not (laughs) Happening. That's not like, what's happening anywhere. I've never had, no one's ever sat me down and had a talk with me about this, nor have I ever read it in any book through my entirety of being a queer youth and adult. I mean, hearing her say anal fissures to me might've been the first <laughs> time I actually ever heard a person in real life speak the word, the phrase anal fissures. So huzzah, Shiva, which is her name, her, her culturally appropriate name, because she is, does not appear to be an Indian person um, of Indian descent. But anyway, so yeah, there are lots of dudes um, all in matching t-shirts, holding professionally glossy printed enormous banners, um, denouncing different, um, you know, like uh, Glendale. I don't know if it was like maybe some school board members and stuff like that, calling them, you know, pedophiles. Um, A woman wearing a red MAGA hat big enough to sit in. It was giant, this giant, goofy novelty MAGA hat. She's like wearing it. Um, There was uh, big pickup trucks with big billboards in them, just denouncing everything and, you know, denouncing queer people. So, yeah, so they were all there and they had bullhorns. They had music. They had a, it was like a festival for them. They had a little like pop-up tent they were selling merch at, you know, in the parking lot. Yeah. So, which I wondered how that was legal, but you know, it was also very obvious the cops were on their side. And what is what I heard. Yeah. And what I've learned is that, you know, there's, there's this one kind of failed politician who tried to get on the city council and, and didn't. And I think maybe he is running again. And he, he's, you know, if he's not a proud boy, he's a proud boy affiliate. And um, he's, he's awful. He's a fascist and the cops, you know, backed him. They like supported him. So that's scary. So they had the proud boys and the fascists on one side. And then they had like, you know, it roped off with like a, like a little gully in the middle that the cops were standing in and then another like rope. And then the queers were on that side. So there was like a moat of police officers between us and, you know, our side hurt my heart. You know, there was just I really, I was so happy that people were there and I could really see and feel how scared and upset everybody, 
you know, was somebody was passing, uh, scared and upset people are, you know, is um, somebody was passing around a bullhorn and people were speaking into it, like who they are and like why they're there, you know, and, you know, there were a lot of parents is a school board meeting. That's not surprising, right? There's a lot of parents who are queer like me. Um, there are a lot of, you know, parents whose kids are queer. There were young queers there too, maybe like high school age. Um, yeah. And it just, it felt like that thing, like for me, you know, and I'm also, also I'm 52 years old. So I've like had a lot of different experience, you know, coming of age as a queer when, you know, it was really common to encounter tons of queer phobia all the time that like, I don't try to talk to these people or engage right. with them, you know, and it's not even just a, as like a, a good technique, you know, for nonviolence or anything like that, though, though it is that as well. It's just more like, I've nothing to say to these people, like that I'm not going to change their mind, you know? Um, but I felt like there was a lot of like yelling from the queer side, sort of earnest, sort of things to and it, it just made me like feel bad for the queers just be like don't don't try to don't waste your energy on these losers like they don't understand your beautiful queer you know magic and it's just I don't know it was hard to know what to do I mean people were busting out all the old chants and I was like oh Jesus not this again but like <laughs> at the same time like we needed some noise you know, I talked to a friend I ran up to there, I met up with there and she was like, oh, I wish I'd brought my drums. And I was like, oh shit. Yeah. You know, I, I have a drum kit too. I could just like pull a, pull a Tom off and bring it next time. And there was somebody else was like, we need a lesbian drum circle. And I was like, you know, I never thought I'd agree with that, but yeah, you know, we need some the theatrics. They have a lot of theatrics, you know, they got their signs, they got their shirts, they got their, their sounds and their music and they're not trying to win us over. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to have people on our side sort of trying to doing this sort of sad, futile attempt to win them over just made my heart hurt. And I was like, we need better organization. We need somebody stepping up to give us something to focus on or do that actually feels empowering and helpful and joyful. And that takes our focus maybe a little bit off of them even and puts it more on like the strength of like queer joy and queer magic. Mm -hmm. Well, <sighs> I was so queer nation has risen up in LA and then maybe other um, organizing bodies will too, but essentially like just calls have been going out saying, Hey, queers show up to this place. Yeah. Because we have been getting Intel about different yeah. places during pride month that the proud boys um, are going to show up at. Yeah. And so then there's been calls to action and I know some people you know, like Beth Pickens has talked on the podcast before about how during hard political times, actually making a list of what you do have to offer and what you don't have to offer. And so it's okay if not every person's body can be up on the picket line. Oh, yeah. But do you know allies who can? Like, this is a great time for allies to step up, you know, because it does, you know, in, in the instance of this, um, protest that happened in front of the school, the school district office, it did turn violent. Um, I had left by that point. Um, but I have a, a friend who was inside the school board chambers offering, you know, public commentary. And first of all, it's important to mention that inside the chambers, it was completely pro-queer, queer love, tons of pro-queer people on the public comments. The school board itself is pro-queer. So, you know, that's really important. And it's interesting because I think that the people who missed the protest and their experience was in the chambers 
had such an affirming, uplifting, empowering experience and maybe felt a little sad that like it was the violence that got the media attention, um, which is understandable, but also the violence was so scary. I mean, you know, if you saw online, there's video of people getting punched, there's pepper spray um, during the, when this was happening in the parking lot, the folks who were inside the school board chambers, including my friend, had to shelter in place and they weren't allowed to leave and everything went, was on hold for a while. And then when they released and people could leave and they were done, my friend went out to the parking lot and she couldn't get to her car because there were just proud boys everywhere. It was like really scary. So she like walked over to my house. That's how close I am. Is that she just like walked over um, to just like hang out with my mom for a minute. But, but yeah. Um, so, so wait, but what was your question? <laughs> oh, just, so what happened next and just ways to show up okay, yeah. and ways, what happened we, next? a lot of queer people listen to this, but also yeah. queer allies. Yeah. Oh yes. That we do need allies. We do need allies because um, I think, especially at this point in our culture where queerness and queer culture has become something that straight allies do consume, um, whether that's having a fun time at the gay bar or going to pride or watching drag race, whatever it is, there's a lot of, of, of queer culture that's accessible to straight people and they love it. And, you know, and they have their queer friends and stuff, but what we're facing right now is really terrifying. And I mean, like, I usually like roll my eyes a little bit when people are melodramatic about like the state of the world. Cause I'm like, just look at history, everything, you know, it's not like that, but this does feel like, you know, when I see, when I leave my house and there are like proud boys walking down my street and like my grocer across the street from me, who I've been shopping at his store for years was actually at the rally, not with us. Like it feels really scary. And, and for me, I just start thinking about, you know, there's countless examples in history of neighbors turning on neighbors for ideological reasons like this and, and it turning into murder and it turning into really hate. It goes to heinous places. I and mean, we know this and, you know, it's a little arrogant to think that it can't happen here when it has happened literally all over the globe, but it has happened here in the past. Right. Um, so to me, it feels that urgent. So I really want to make a call to all allies. Like if you've ever danced in a gay bar, if you've ever had a beer at pride, like you better be standing up against these protests when they, when they happen, if you find out about it, you need to come out. We really need straight allies. We need everybody to show up and, and say that it's unacceptable to have like fascists they're getting bolder and bolder it's it's insane that they are hitting los angeles which is a major metropolitan city with tons of queer people um and you and you know we're, it's california we're one of the like safe spaces in our country right now and so it's really it's really wild we definitely need we need straight allies and we really need you know especially like cisgendered like straight white men to like put their bodies between queer people and these proud boys you know and, and just kind of do that, like step up in that way. We would really appreciate it. We would like that. Thank you very much. I'm five two. I need, yeah. if you, if you're a man who otherwise would want to stand in front of me at a concert, that's blocking my view. If I've ever tapped you on the shoulder and grimaced because you were standing in front of me at a concert, now stand in front of me at the protest. Oh my God. I love that so much. <laughs> Boys to the front. <laughs> Boys to the front. <laughs> Men oh who identify God. as boys to the front. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So yeah, so you know, there has been a queer nation chapter that has formed in Los Angeles that is doing some organizing, some really daring organizing. Um, you know, this this week, um, there was a follow-up to the the melee at the school board meeting. There was a Glendale, again in Glendale, Glendale City Council meeting where the council people were talking about what happened. And unfortunately, you know, there was, you know, four core queer queer nation members came, right? Two were inside the city council chambers um, where they were drastically outnumbered and were and were called pedophiles by a room full of scary men who were screaming at them. And, you know, I mean, I don't understand what the hell, like, the mayor was doing and the city council people were doing while this was happening, but it sounds terrifying and unacceptable and, and really scary for the queer people. And, you know, there were others, some other queer people in there too, but they were definitely, or, you know, concerned parents, you know, were there, um, but they were definitely hugely outnumbered by the proud boys. And then outside on the street, same thing. We had like two queer nation members that were there kind of scoping it out, being a little bit more low pro, but you know, the, the proud boys obviously knew that they weren't, proud boys. So, so they were also, you know, in danger and, and thankfully, you know, some escorts came to get them and take them away. So, you know, in a situation like that, we did put out a call, well, Queer Nation put out a call for folks to join and nobody came. And, you know, there's like a lot to say about that. Like who knows how far that signal boost went? Like maybe a lot of people didn't know. Um, it was a little last minute. Maybe people had things they couldn't get out of. Certainly there are people who are just like, I'm not, I don't have the capacity for that. And, and I do have a lot of compassion and understanding for that also, but it's like, you know, this is serious. And when things like that happen and they get away with something like that, they are emboldened. And it's like, you know, please come to my city because my city is actually not that far away from your city and they're going to come to your city. And you know, they, these are the people that stormed the Capitol. I mean, they don't give a fuck, you know, these are really, and maybe that is actually scary and will <laughs> send people away from joining a, a, a protest, a counter protest. But I don't know. I just feel like this is, this feels like one of those really important times where we have to st stand up, you know, together as a culture and say, absolutely fucking not. So yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be starting with my friend Tara Jepson um, and, and certainly others will join on. Um, a sort of like network alert system, you know, for Los Angeles called Q-Tip Queers Together in Protest, which is a sort of riff on a really amazing um, event that used to happen in San Francisco in the 90s called Queers Together in Punkness, which was like queer punk shows that uh, Miriam Kleinstahl, the artist Miriam Kleinstahl would, would curate. Um, so we, she, she gave us the blessing to, to steal that and call it queers together in protest. And what, what we really want to do is just keep it quick and dirty, keep it fat, you know, keep it fast and loose. And, you know, this is, this is my experience as a, as a Gen Xer of doing, you know, queer activism. And when I was younger in my twenties, you know, doing stuff with queer nation, doing stuff with act up is that you just learned like what the target is and you just stayed, you just showed up and you put your body on the line and yes, you're taking a risk. And yes, that's not going to be for everyone. Um, and yes, you know, we will all support each other and keep each other as safe as we possibly can. Um, but yeah, I want, I, basically what we want to do is, um, just be able to send out alerts when there is a queer event, a sort of larger scale queer event that might get protested. We want to let folks know. And so then maybe so that we can increase queer presence 
at that and not have it be as, you know, as scary as it might be for the folks who are going. For instance, you know, this Saturday is Glendale Pride and obviously Glendale being ground zero for the Proud Boys, I'm expecting protests. So I'd love for, you know, people to come out and be at this Pride and just be bodies standing in solidarity with Glendale queers and with each other. So we want to let people know about that. We obviously want to know about when like fascists are planning a protest, you know, the way that they planned a protest at the school board. We want to let people know that so we can show up. And we also want to be able to alert, like, you know, if there's a business that does something really queer phobic, or, you know, if we find things like that out that we can maybe plan an action to sort of call attention and, and scold those people and publicly sh shame them, you know? So those are kind of the things that we're looking at. Right. Um, and, and there's space for joy in our resistance too. Like I heard somebody say that for drag queen story hour, you know, the kinds of things like having like a queer drum corps or like marching band come to, so to show queer presence, but also like to drown out these people yelling that everyone walking in the door is a pedophile. Yes. Like this is a hundred percent what I feel like my personal strategy is. This is what I am interested in as a strategy, because again, I'm not trying, I'm not interested in talking to these people. I'm not interested in trying to change their minds and I'm not interested in fighting with them because like fighting and arguing makes me feel terrible, you know, but I can show up to this heavy conflict situation. And if I bring a drum or a fucking big silly flag, or I dress like a clown or you know, or if I'm like lampooning them or, you know, there's so many, you know, you can use street theater, you can use music, you can use persona, performance art. I mean, we have like a troop of like gay clowns that I believe are coming to, you know, Glendale Pride. And it's, and it's for this reason. It's so that we have something else to look at besides these dummies and that we can delight in each other. And also, show them that like we're living our lives here and like they're they can stand on the sidewalk with their bullhorns and like life goes on and you know they're not i i don't i like i like it when they don't get our goat you know i like it when we're able to resist sort of letting them set the the um you know the the conversation like the conversation they're proposing is we're pedophiles like how, how can you respond to that like that's insane like to even be like, like, no, I'm not. Like, it's like, it's so <laughs> stupid. It's like, I'm not even going to have that conversation. So there's nothing to say to these people, you know? Um, so what do we want to say to each other in, in the face of them, I think is what I'm interested in. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for giving this a signal blast. And, um, you know, if you're interested in, if you're in the LA area and you're interested in learning about when and where things might be happening, with Q-Tip, just DM me and I'll put you on some sort of list or something. Yeah. And you can find Queer Nation LA on Instagram. You can yes. follow Michelle on Instagram. And be safe out there, friends. Please be safe, everybody. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.